we have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very, very similar. Then there's John, who we've done Bible study years ago, and maybe we'll do again. John has a very different Gospel. So early on, by the 3rd, 4th century, church writers began to realize that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, kind of they follow the same chronology, the same basic storyline, and in Greek, to the same vision is sin optia, and they began to call those those synoptics. So the synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now let's talk about where these gospels come from. Mark, let's see here, let's just do it like this. Mark is the first gospel to appear. Mark shows up about 65 AD. We'll get to that when we get specifically into Mark here in about 10 minutes. Um, shortly after Mark, maybe about 10 years down the road in the 70s, we get Matthew and Luke. And then much later, around 90, 92 AD, we have the Gospel of John appearing. Mark has 661 verses. There's no way I can do this upside down. Now we take a look at Matthew. I'm sorry, Father. <laughs> We're going to put Luke over here as well, the synoptics. Almost all 661 verses of Mark are in both Luke and Matthew. So clearly, when Matthew and Luke sat down to write their gospel, they had Mark in front of them. Then there are an additional 223 verses that both Matthew and Luke have almost verbatim, word for word, and there too, not part of Mark, 223 more verses that Matthew and Luke have in common. We're going to be biblical scholars right now. Draw a conclusion for me. When Matthew, pardon? Plagiarism. Yes. From where? Mark. All of Mark is already in there. The German word for source is Quelle, Q-U-E-L-E, -E, and so scholars have a Conveniently called this the Q source. When Matthew sat down to write his gospel, he had Mark in front of him, plus Q, plus some things that just Matthew has. There are some things in Matthew's gospel that only he says. My favorite passage in the New Testament, for I was hungry and you gave, I, for those of you who don't know, I ran a soup kitchen. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was naked and you clothed me. That, that's only Matthew that has that. So Mark plus this unknown Q source in Matthew equals Matthew. Luke Kind of the same formula. Luke had Mark in front of him, plus this Q source, plus Luke. There are some things that only Luke has. Um, in the Christmas stories, Luke has the, the visitation by the Magi, by the shepherds. Uh, by the shepherds. Luke has, or uh, Matthew has the visitation by the Magi. Luke has parables that only he has, the parable of the Good Samaritan, the parable of the prodigal son. That's only in Luke's gospel. I'm going to come back to this Q source, these 223 verses that are both in Matthew and Luke. <clears throat> Scholars have been trying to find this forever. Was it a written source? No. What was it? It was probably the oral tradition of the church. When we both Catholic and Orthodox talk about tradition, I'm not talking about lighting candles and bowing and kissing and these kind of things. 
It's the stories that we tell. You have to remember, in the first century, when the Gospels were being written, maybe one out of 100 people could read and write. How do they pass the stories down? Orally, verbally. Um, in Africa, you go to villages in Africa, there are people called griots, and they tell the history of the village, and they'll go back 10, 12 generations. All right, I'm lucky if I can remember what I had for breakfast this morning. These people can tell the story of villages going back 12, 13, 14 generations because that's the way the ancient world did it. Today we find that hard to believe because we have Google this or Siri that or Alexa this. In the ancient world, stories were passed down orally. And it was the church that had preserved the words of Jesus. The Lord's Prayer. Mark doesn't have it. Matthew and Luke do. The, the, the oral tradition of the church had already made the Lord's Prayer so much a part, it was put in. So, uh, just to, again, I don't want to make you biblical scholars, but just to understand a little bit about how Gospels are created. So now, let's jump in to Mark. And let's remember something here. Mark is the first Gospel to be written. Those of you who were here for Romans last year, any idea, anybody remember when St. Paul started writing his letters? In the 30s, the late 30s, well, Jesus ascends in, in 32, 33 AD. Uh, St. Paul starts writing his letters in 45, 46, 1 Thessalonians. 20 years later, we have the first gospel. So for 20 years, Paul's letters have been circulating. Why did Mark sit down to write a gospel? And again, I'm asking those of you who were at study last year, because I want you to connect this. Remember, what was the expectation of the early church? Jesus is coming back like next week. Why do we need to write it down? He's coming back. We are now 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. The first generation of Christians is starting to die off. And people are starting to go, somebody better write this down. More like a historian. Exactly. Because pretty soon all the people who were there are going to be dead. Because he may not be coming back. And I don't mean this to be cavalier or crass. The early church expected Jesus to come back next week. He's coming back. I mean, there were people who said, why do we need jobs? Why do we, why do we need to take care of our house? He's coming back. He's going to come back and take us to heaven. And as that fervor kind of died away, the church becomes institutionalized. And I'm not too sure that's a good thing. But we can save that for another day. I want to look right at the very beginning of the gospel. Judy, you're to my left. I want you to start reading the first three or four verses. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets. Okay, it's not in the beginning, it's just the beginning. Okay. And we talked at length about this when we did Paul to Rome. Does everybody have Mark 1 in front of him? All right. Mm -hmm. The beginning of the gospel. He doesn't mean the book. He means what? The, truth. the message. What, when we talk about the gospel in, in our studies last time, especially when we did the Acts of the Apostles. Does anyone remember some basic points? What is the gospel? What is the gospel message? In Jesus, God has come to save his people. That is the gospel, pure and simple. That has been the message of the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church for 2,000 years. Anything else is fluff. If you wonder why, and Mary Lou, get used to me. This is just the kind of way I am. It's shocking that Father Peter puts up and keeps asking me to come back and teach Bible study because I can be terribly offensive. 
And I accept that. And, and as soon as I get too offensive, just stop asking me to teach, and I'm fine with that too. <laughs> there are reasons why the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church in many places are spiritually dead or dying. And it's because we don't preach Jesus Christ anymore. Because we don't preach the gospel. And the gospel is painfully simple. We, we need salvation. He's it. And all we have to do is let him love us. It's, it's, it's really very simple. The church complicates things. We have to do this, and you have to do that. And, and you know, I used to teach seminarians about preaching, and I said, there's really only two messages you're going to give. What the people need to do or what God has done for them. And if you really want to irritate your parishioners and, and tire them out and have an empty church, spend every sermon talking about what the people need to do. You need to pray more, you need to fast more, you need to give more, you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to volunteer, you need to... After a while, who wants to hear that? We come to church, we're exhausted, we're beat up, we're scared, we're lonely, we're trying to pay our mortgages, we're trying to keep our kids off drugs, we're trying to do these things. Spend more time talking about what God has done. Then you'll fill the churches. Because that's the message people want to hear. That's the gospel. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the message where Jesus is not only the bringer of the gospel, he is the gospel himself. I, I cannot emphasize this point enough. That is the message of the gospel. It is Jesus Christ is, has come to save us. And, and so as we accept all of our human weaknesses, we bring them to him and let him love us. All right, Judy, keep going. Behold, I send my messenger before your face. Who will prepare your way before you? The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sin. Stop right there. How does the gospel, and I'm talking about the book, how does the gospel of Mark begin? What's the first passage about? What are we leading up to? The Son of God. The Son of God, but I mean, historically, what's happening in the text? Oh, the baptism. Mm -hmm. What's missing? John Baptist. Don't be too deep and theological. What's missing? The birth! Didn't even mention the birth of Jesus, did he? No. Why? What I'm about to say will get me tarred and feathered in every store in America. Christmas wasn't a big deal. It wasn't a big deal. Of course Jesus was born. He's here. Where do you think he came from? He hatched under a rock? Christmas was never a big deal for the church. In fact, it wasn't a big deal in America until like the late 19th century when Coca-Cola and the marketers took over and made it about to family and togetherness and having meals and all that stuff. And that's not bad, but that's really in the last hundred years. The church didn't even celebrate Christmas for 400 years. What was infinitely more important than Jesus being born? Jesus being baptized. That was, Epiphany was the feast, second Theophany, second only to Pascha, to Jesus' resurrection. Epiphany was the major feast. It was John Chrysostom, believe it or not, who brought Christmas to Constantinople in the late 4th century. So for 300 years, it was like, yeah, he was born. Who cares? Of course he was born. No one cared. So Christmas started to be celebrated, but it was always connected to Epiphany. And here's your fun little note for the day. I've shared this with some of you in the past. Um, our contemporary American Christmas carol, the 12 days of Christmas, it's not the 12 days after Christmas. I'm sorry, it's not the 12 days before Christmas. It's the 12 days from Christmas to Epiphany. 
If you go look at your calendar and count from December 25th to January 6th, it's 12 days. It was one feast. So the first sort of layer of this was the church celebrated Epiphany and Christmas on the same day. It was like, Jesus was baptized and all those things that we're going to look at later tonight. And, oh yeah, he was born too. Eh, whatever, okay. And then gradually Christmas began to be separated out in its own standalone feast. But for the first few hundred years, it was still one unit. So from Christmas to Epiphany was one 12-day unit. That's the 12 days of Christmas. Every year when we were singing about partridges and pear trees and leaping lords and dancing maidens and all this garbage, it kind of cracks me up because I say to myself as a Greek Orthodox, they still have the echo of what we started. One feast. What was of preeminence was Jesus' baptism. So Mark doesn't even get into the birth. Matthew and Luke, 10 years later, when they write their gospel, now this has started to become a question. Well, was Jesus really Jewish? Why do you think Matthew and Luke, and we're here to do Mark, not Matthew and Luke, but Matthew and Luke start with these god-awful genealogies, right? Just for kicks, let's take a look. You're in Mark right now. Turn back to Matthew. Real quick, was it a coincidence that the Gregorian calendar is also about 12 days off from the union? Uh, it's, a pure, it's a pure coincidence now because every 112 years, the Gregorian calendar, the Julian calendar falls another day behind. Yeah. Assuming Jesus doesn't come back for another thousand years, um, the old calendar Orthodox will be celebrating Christmas in August and Easter in December because it falls another day behind every 112 years. So here is the verse that, that here's the passage that has priests um, shivering awake all night in a cold sweat. This is done the Sunday night before Christmas. Father, you're on. Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, verse 2. Good enough. We got the concept. I'm not done. Yeah, trust me, you're done. No, so, I mean, all these wonderful Jewish names. Well, by the time Matthew and Luke, 10 years after Mark, it's not Jesus' birth that was a big idea, but all of a sudden, is he really Jewish? Who is he? You know, we've got to make sure that we're connecting him to the historical reality. So they have these long genealogies. And again, we're here to study Mark, not Matthew. But what's interesting now, there's an agenda in the genealogy itself. Matthew puts three different people in those genealogies that no Jew would ever do. Gentiles, women, and sinners. Who, when you're talking about your family lineage, is going to mention the uncle that went to prison? Right? You don't do that. You make it look good. Matthew doesn't. <clears throat> Already in the genealogy of Jesus, he's talking about what his mission is. He's come to save everyone. No Jew, no offense to the ladies here, no Jew would ever put a woman in their genealogy. Matthew did. He's saying Jesus has come for everyone. So he had a little bit of an agenda. So since we're talking about Jesus' genealogy, well, now we get the birth narrative. And now we get Bethlehem and the nativity and the cows and the camels and the sheep and wise men over here and shepherds over there and all this stuff and 
yay, Christmas is sort of born. But for Mark, you couldn't care less. What does that tell us about the church in 65 AD? Jesus' birth was not an issue, or he would have put it in the gospel. What was more important? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and we're going to get to this John the Baptist business in a minute, but the gospel is that Jesus is God. You know, Gordon, you said that a few minutes ago. And the, the revelation of that takes place first where? In his baptism. Um, and I apologize, the, the, the young woman that you're, the, from Russia, your name again is? Lily. Lily. You, you called the feast properly Theophany, yes. which means the appearance of God. That's you know, the correct name for the Feast of Jesus' baptism. It's not his baptism that's important. We're going to see what was important when we read the text tonight. But it's the beginning of the gospel. What's the gospel? Not only Jesus is the bringer of the gospel, he is the gospel. He's not just the bringer of the message, he is the message. And the message is, he's God. Which, keep in mind some of the things we've said before. The Greeks, their mind is blown. He's God. We got lots of gods. There's just one more. Who cares? So to the Jewish people, this is scandalous. He can't be God. He's got flesh. He's, he had parents. He's got uncles and aunts, and he's got all these people in his genius. So it was a scandal. And yet the basic message of Mark is he is God. And we're going to see how that plays out in the baptism. Let's deal with verse 2 first. It starts with this Isaiah bit. Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare thy way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. The Jews had the expectation that Isaiah was going to come back, or Elijah, one of them, was going to come back before the Messiah came. There was always this character who was going to show up first, um, making this, the paths straight. There's a, an ancient Greek, Greek Orthodox church writer, Theophylact, who has an interesting interpretation of this. He says, this is clearly a prophecy of St. John the Baptist and the, the crooked paths that he needs to straighten out, it's the Jewish synagogue. He needs to prepare the Jews to receive the Messiah. I think, ooh, that's actually kind of cool. I wish I had thought of that. You know, Theophylact wrote in like the fifth century, but it's kind of neat that he's straightening out the Jewish synagogue, which had gotten crooked. I mean, let's face it, Jesus came and the Jewish people missed the point. They didn't understand him as the Messiah. They were, you know, again, we've covered this in other Bible studies. What were the Jewish people waiting for? What was their vision of Messiah? King. 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 And in particular, a military king who was going to lead them out of freedom from Rome, from slavery to Rome. They never connected, many of them did, obviously. They never connected the kingship of Jesus is the kingship of the universe, and the army that he was going to lead was us, and it's not slavery to Rome, it's slavery to the devil and sin. So you know, he wasn't coming as a military messiah, he was coming as the savior. So again, just kind of a nice thought about Theophylact and the, the crooked past. All right, let's get to John the, John the Baptist. Judy, read verses four, um, four through eight. John is just, a, he's an interesting character. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and all those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now let's talk about what he's doing before we get to him. What actually is he doing? 
Again, read the text. Don't be profound. He's baptizing. So lesson one here, baptism is not something that the Greek Orthodox Church created or the Catholic Church. Jews baptized too. What were they baptized for? Read the text. Don't tell me what you think. There is a connection between baptism and the, and the remission, the forgiveness of sins. To this day, uh, has anyone here been in a pilgrimage to the Holy Lands? When you, you, there's a, a little service where you're not baptized, obviously we've all been baptized here, but you are submerged in the, the River Jordan and you become a haji. You had, the Greeks, we had hadzi here. Somebody's like uh, John Haji George. If haji is in front of their name, either they or their, their parents did a pilgrimage to the Holy Lands. H-A-D-G-I. Or hadzi, if, you know, if, if they use the Greek pronunciation. In Arabic, it's hajj. The Muslims do the hajj to Mecca. So it's this idea of being baptized uh, and, and connecting it to forgiveness of sins. It's, it's not even remotely born by the Christians. The Jews did it too. What does that say about the people who were going to John? What does it say about them? Well, they were seeking salvation. Yes. They knew they needed something. John was preaching. Let's take a good look again at the text itself. Verse 4. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is a point that I've made in, in my whole ministry, both in sermons and in, in this particular study. The idea of repentance. We need to talk about that. That word right there in verse 4. Repentance has nothing to do with mood or feeling. It is not feeling sorry for your sins. My, my wise spiritual father, who was a Russian monk, said to me years ago, you can't feel sorry for something you enjoyed doing. Um, repentance, the Greek word metania, when you break it down, meta, change, nous, the mind. I stole a loaf of bread last week and I ate it. Can't feel sorry for that. I enjoyed it. I liked the bread. And I had peanut butter and jelly with it. And that was delicious too. Repentance says, I recognize this is wrong and I'm not going to do it anymore. We have got to get off this idea that repentance is this sorrowful, oh, I'm so sorry for my sins. I'm going to go out and do them again, but I'm so sorry for my sins. And I'm sorry I did that again, but I'm sorry for my sins. Stop. Yeah. I had a question. <clears throat> so how do you separate the sense of conscious consciousness? You know, this is you know conscious thing to do, you know, to behave <clears throat> this way, as opposed to, well, I enjoy the, the bread I stole. Mm -hmm. Because you there has to be a feeling attached to that sense of conscious. You know, this is a conscious thing to do. I can't do this no more because I'm hurting the other people who are also hungry. So there has to be some feeling attached to it. Hence, you know, I, I wish I, tell you, I, I could have paid him to ask the question as just as you did. Because, and I, and I hope I don't embarrass you, me, or us, um, married couples, we're getting married. We love each other. Of course there's feeling and emotion there. Of course, you know, we get sweaty palms and our heart races when we're with each other. Even Johnny and... Well, maybe not. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Johnny. Oh, yeah. oh, even, even Johnny and Joyce after, you know, what, 10 years now? 
Um, 57. 57. Of course, and that's probably an even better example. Of course, there's the warmth, there's the feeling, there's the emotion. Why else would you have put up with it for 57 years? Right? <laughs> that being said, love is not just a feeling, it's a decision. It's an active decision that says, I forsake all others, I, I say this, I, I forsake all others in the world for you. I choose to be with you. Yes, when I'm with you, I feel good. My heart races, I get sweaty palms, it's all great. I'm not downplaying the emotion, but there's also the active decision. Love is a feeling and a decision. So is repentance. We have to decide that, that stealing that loaf of bread, whatever activity it is that we're trying to, we have to recognize that ultimately that brings us death. And, and that's something the modern world doesn't want to deal with. I would hate to be a young person in today's world. Because the world says to you, you know, sex and drugs and, and being drunk, it's cool, this is just part of living, this is the... These things are death. And they lead to death. And repentance, metania, says, rather than going that, which may be pleasurable for a few minutes, but then it's going to kill me. No, I, I choose to live a righteous, a righteous, holy life. It's a decision. One more thing really yeah. quickly. So decision as, in a, as a concept is only valid if you act upon it. Oh, absolutely. So it's the, the act that defines the decision, not necessarily your feelings or the process of thinking. So you recognize what's right, what's wrong. You're not feeling great because you're going to be hungry, you know, but no. I will act righteously. I will be decent human being. And that, therefore, it translates into repentance. Remember what, what James in his epistle says, even the demons believe, but they don't love. Yeah. yeah it, it, we, there has to be an act. There has to be an action. All right. So back to John. So he's preaching this baptism of repentance, which is telling the, the, the people who are coming to him, change. You've got to change what you're doing. You've got to change your life. And, and again, you know, again, I'm not picking on the young people. I'm going to throw you in here too, Grace. Um, <laughs> our world is saying to you, why do you change? go with it? Hey, you know, you know self-expression and do whatever. No one is saying to people today, no, these behaviors are not acceptable. You need to change them. We need to live righteous, holy lives. Um, we say that we get canceled. Well, or, or you get fired. Or you get fired. You know, I, I had a parishioner, a pillar of the parish, and she was, this is years ago, uh, she was leaving her husband to go uh, be with someone that they were high school friends, and they you know, reconnected on Facebook, you know, this kind of craziness, and actually said to me, don't you think God wants me to be happy? And my answer was, no, I don't. <laughs> I, I, let me finish. I said, I think God wants you to be holy. And when we're holy, ultimately we will find true happiness. Happiness isn't getting what we want. This world tells us those momentary pleasures are everything. Happiness is the end all and be all. I don't think God really cares if we're happy or not. I think God wants us to be holy. And the irony is, if we lived holy lives, we'd be infinitely happier. We'd be infinitely happier. If you're not stealing from work, you don't have to go home and be worried if you're going to get caught. Right. Forgive me, gentlemen, young ladies, for being this blunt. If you're not out sleeping around, you don't have to worry about getting a sexually transmitted disease. Tell me who the happy one is. Christos Yanaras is a contemporary Greek Orthodox theologian who wrote a book called The Freedom of Morality. 
People think ethics and morals, oh, morals are you know, restricting. It's the ultimate freedom. It's the ultimate freedom. Think what all of the freedom of, of the last 50 years has brought America to. Free sex, free drugs, free drink. What has it brought us to? Absolute catastrophe and ruin. Morality is the ultimate freedom. All right, back to John the Baptist here. Okay, so he's you know doing his thing. They're baptizing, they're confessing. Let's talk a little bit about John. Um, Judy, go back to you. Let's describe him. Verse 6. And John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Now, I, I don't know how delicious locusts and wild honey are. It, it, <laughs> as a vegetarian, I'm like, ooh, that's kind of weird. But, okay, um, we, we definitely have this image of John as kind of an out-there character, this sort of wild, crazy. Um, he's wearing a, a, a hair shirt. Um, uh, where's Brahim when we need him, Debbie? Um, you know, those, those of you who, have, who, who come from the Middle East, who, who come from the land of Judea, how comfortable would a hair shirt be in August in, in, in yeah. the Middle East? Yeah, not very. Um, but let's keep, keep going. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Okay, we're going to stop. That there's a lot to unpack here. Um, this would have been a good night to be in the church. The next time you're in the Orth uh, a Greek Orthodox Church or an <coughs> Orthodox Church, I'm sorry the Roman Catholics don't have the icons, but this will make sense. You can go in and see the icons. When you stare at the altar, to the immediate left of the altar is the icon of Christ. And to the left of him is what? Oh, all right. Oh, right. I'm sorry. sorry. I, I'm, I'm thinking. I'm, I'm looking at. I'm looking at you, the congregation. You've got Jesus, and next to Jesus is John the Baptist. And what's John the Baptist doing? Holding us and pointing. Pointing to Jesus. He's pointing to the icon next door. There are these little subtle things that I that the iconographic tradition of our church does that are so cool. At almost every proper iconostasion, the icon screen, and again, I'm thinking as a clergyman facing you, so you have Jesus and you have, uh, to the right is Mary and then the patron saint of the church, to the left is Jesus and John the Baptist, and every icon of John the Baptist, he's holding his staff and he's in his camel's hair coat and his hair is always kind of wild and disheveled, and he is very typically pointing to the icon next to him. Iconographically, what is that icon saying? He's the man. I'm not the message. He's the message. I'm the one preparing. He, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. There was a servant in a wealthy person's house, very typical in the ancient world, Rome and Jew. Um, the lowest of the low, his job, and, and again, I don't mean to be crass, I mean to be real. Okay, These are real things we have to discuss. Um, we don't have socks and shoes back then. You're walking around in sandals in the hot desert. Does anyone want to think about what your feet would smell like at the end of the day? Yeah. <laughs> Again, I don't mean, I'm not being funny or cavalier. These are things you have to actually think about. Um, there was a servant whose job it was to take the master's sandals off and wash his feet when he came home at the end of the day. And this was like, it would be a young boy whose parents were slaves in the house. And this was his or her start on a, on a life of slavery. You're the lowest of the lowest of the low. You got foot washing duty. 
Here's John the Baptist that the whole world is flocking to hear. And what is he saying? I'm not worthy to be the sandal boy in this guy's house. Go back to that icon screen. You're sitting in liturgy. You start thinking about, oh, the dolphins kick off at one. Father's sermon's going on for four hours. The choir stinks. The air conditioning's not working. Here's the no, new world beautiful. <laughs> All the, you know, what's for lunch? Oh, my God, I forgot to do this thing at work. And you kind of, all of a sudden, you, you look at the icon screen, and there's John the Baptist going, wake up. This is what you're supposed to be thinking about. He's still doing iconographically what he did here in the scripture. He's preparing us for the one who is mightier than I. I love his, his expression here. After me comes one who is mightier than I, the thong of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, the new life that Jesus Christ is going to bring. John the Baptist is crystal clear of his place, his ministry, and the preeminence of Jesus Christ. He recognizes that he is not the message. He's not even the messenger. He's the one who prepares the way for the messenger. This is also where the contemporary church gets a little off base. We kind of forget. We're not the message. We're not even the messenger. We should be pointing people. This is why I, I, I love having, we got a couple of Johns with us. You know, I, we love that you, know, you, you have the feast day of St. John. It, it, it's a reminder to all of us. The church is supposed to be a John the Baptist, preparing, making crooked paths straight, bringing people to repentance, and pointing them to Christ. Can I ask you a dumb question? Yeah. I'm sure there was more than one person that baptized people. What made him famous was that Jesus chose him to baptize them. Well, there's a lot of things that make him famous. Uh, remember, let's go back to our little chair here, uh, Luke. Yeah, uh, Luke gives us the background. John is actually Jesus' cousin. Right, and so when he was in the womb and Mary went to visit her cousin, the babe leapt for joy when she greeted him. And, you know, what just happened here? She was the babe in my womb leapt for joy when she heard your voice. Even in the womb, John the Baptist knew what was coming. So there's that cousin relationship, and there was something about his, his ministry that just resonated with the people. And obviously with Herod, too, because Herod eventually had him put to death. Well, and you know, Father, I didn't know they were cousins. That yeah. was my bad. That's okay. But I appreciate that you'll learn. You'll learn something every time you come, Mark. Um, yeah, as, as Father just pointed out, Herod has had this weird... We could do a whole study uh, some night on just Herod he had this love-hate relationship with John the Baptist. He couldn't, he couldn't stop listening to him because his message was resonating simultaneously. He, by the way, Herod is sleeping with his brother's wife. Yeah, guys did that back in the first century too. You guys think we invented sex. I got news for you, it's been around for a long, long time. And people have been doing weird things for a long, long time. And so Herod is—he's actually sleeping with his brother's wife, which is, you know, not kosher, um, and, and he's being critiqued and, and called out for it. And yet he is so impressed by him, he won't put him to death until. By the way, Herod was not only sleeping with his brother's wife; he also wanted his brother's wife's daughter. Right? He was after her. This guy had some serious issues, as we would say in psychology. And you know, she came and danced before the uh, 
the court, and he was so enraptured. And let's, again, gentlemen, I'm not making this stuff up. He was so sexually turned on. He wanted to say, I give you the half of my kingdom, anything you want. And she said, I want the head of John the Baptist. And he's like, ugh. <laughs> now what do I do? But he had just promised her in front of his whole court. He had no choice but to follow through. So yeah, there was this weird, where, where Herod, he kind of wanted to keep John in prison so he could keep listening to his, his message. Interesting, there's a whole, whole other thing there. All right, so we got John, he's preparing. Let's get to verse nine. I, I will, let's, let's get through uh, the baptism tonight. Um, somebody on my right. Joe. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. A quick word here before we get to the text. A little bit of background on Mark. Um, I, I wish Pandalia was here tonight with, with the Greek text. Well, hopefully he'll, he'll come next week. Yeah, we're, we're missing the St. Catherine's group. Um, Mark, of all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Mark's Greek is the worst. Um, he actually makes some grammatical mistakes in, in Greek. You know, the Gospels were written in Greek, and, and you know, I don't blame them. They were not Greek speakers. These were Jewish men. Luke writes a very beautiful Greek. He was an educated man. Luke was a doctor. John writes a very beautiful Greek. Matthew is okay. Mark actually, Mark tells a story, and part of it is he was young. Part of it is his Greek stinks. Um, he tells the story the way a five-year-old would. And then and we, we got up, and, and then we went to the store, and then we were at the store, and while we were at the store, and then I got a piece of candy, and then we, after the candy, we went to the park, and then I got on the slide, and then we went to the baseball game. And then and, and you're going you're gonna to see this throughout Mark. And everything happened immediately. And immediately we did this, and, and, and immediately we did that. Part of it is just Mark's youthful exuberance. Part of it is he doesn't know Greek that well. Maybe that's why Matthew and Luke were That's exactly correct. Mark, you're not too far from the truth. Yeah, so when you see this and, 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 and immediately, 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 number one, that's Mark's style. Number two, it's because he didn't speak Greek very well, and he certainly didn't write Greek very well. So it's just kind of you know fun little things when you look at the text. So here we're getting to, the, as Lily, correct? Yeah, as you we've talked about this great feast of theophany and think you know what Luke would do with this oh and the, the heavens and the, this and the. in those days Jesus came from Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan next <laughs> this is very typical of Mark's style we're going to see this throughout Mark is the shortest gospel it's in 661 verses there's you know 16 chapters Matthew's got 28 and Matthew Matthew's going to go on Matthew wants to write Luke wants to go on John is going to go on forever Mark, Mark is the, I'm going to show my age here, he is the, um, the, the, Jack, the Jack Friday, the, 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 the Jack Webb, the, the Detective Friday of, of the Gospels. Yeah, Dragnet, facts, man, just the facts. Just give me the facts, man. That's Mark. Just give me the facts. Not a lot of color. You have to be around our age, though. Not a lot of fluff. So, verse 9, before we get back to John. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. <clears throat> We're not really told anything about it. There, in the other Gospels, there's this beautiful little dialogue between you know, John and Jesus. Oh, Master, I need to be baptized by you. No, let it be. Mark doesn't care. He was baptized. Now let's find out what happens after. John, pick it up in verse 10. And, and? immediately, <laughs> coming from the water, he 
saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice from heaven and it came from heaven. You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Stop right there. This is such a powerful moment. And Mark sums it up in two verses without a lot of color. Um, I, I don't pr- propose that I would edit the Gospel of Mark. But if I were writing the story, I would have had some of the details in there. You know, was the water cold? Or was it flowing? What was Jesus wearing? What did they serve at the lunch afterwards? I mean, there's some, there's some details I'd like to know. Uh, he was baptized. The voice came. The spirit. Next. So let's talk a little bit about this. Let's take a quick look at verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens open and the spirit descending upon him like a dove. Can we just clear up once and for all? Yes, I get it. The whole idea of the identification of the Holy Spirit with the image of a dove, it's peace. Remember the, uh, the dove back from Noah when we did Genesis last year, when the flood subsided. So a dove is always a symbol of reconciliation, that the flood was over and the waters were, were resigned. Great, terrific. The Holy Spirit is not a bird. There is um, an icon much more popular in Greek circles than in the Antiochian circles, thank God. Um, where it's, oh, it's an icon of the Holy Trinity, and it's Jesus, an old man, and a dove. I don't want to say, go so far as to say that's a heretical icon, but it's a heretical icon. God the Father is not an old man, and the Holy Spirit is not a bird. Um, If you really look at the, the careful Greek at verse 10, it said, he saw the Spirit descending upon him like a dove, Another rendition would be, he saw the Spirit descending upon him in a dove-like manner. Right? Kind of floating. The Spirit floating down and covering Jesus. Yeah, when we still do theophany, the Greeks let go of the doves. Oh, I know. We love, we Greeks love our doves. And, and there's a, you know, oh God, 50 years ago in Tarpon Springs, during the Epiphany, one of the doves landed on Archbishop Yakovos' crown. Oh my God. The Greek archdiocese was ready for the rapture. It's like, oh my God! It's, it's a sign! Yeah, it's a sign that the bird was tired. That's what it's a sign. I mean, for I don't know who's listening to this tape, but I, I may get kicked out of two jurisdictions tonight, John. Um, I, I'm just saying, be very careful. And, and, and I know, especially in the early 20th century, both the Greeks, a little bit of the Russians, but the Greeks, were they loved that icon. Many of our grandparents, if you have it, I'm not saying get rid of it, but just put it away. It's a non-canonical icon. <laughs> just put it away. The, 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 the Holy Trinity is not Jesus, an old man, and a bird. So let's just kind of deal with that one. And like sometimes uh, they say that if you see Christ depicted as an old man, they say that they're in Revelations. That's how he's described. It's actually from Daniel, where he's described as the Ancient of Days. <clears throat> yeah, that's where that comes from, the that's Old Testament. Yeah. I, that's, I can live with that, but I'm not too crazy about the other depiction of the Trinity. And, 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 oh gosh, the Greek churches, especially in the Northeast, in the early 20th century, they all have that icon for the Holy Trinity. And you're walking, you just go. <laughs> okay, so we get the Spirit descending, and we, you know, a little your phrase, theophany. This is the appearance of God, the triune God. Because we have Jesus, the Spirit, not a bird, descending like a dove-like manner, and... A voice. Whose voice? The Father. The Father. Because what does the voice say in verse 11? 
So if he's identifying as the son, who's the voice? Who's the speaker? The father. Thou art my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus hasn't even started his ministry yet. And he's being identified. Mark, as we go through these next few weeks, Mark uses a technique that is called the messianic secret, where Jesus kind of both reveals and hides his identity. Because if everybody knows who he is, what's going to happen? He'd be crucified. He's got work to do first. So he wants to keep his identity hidden, but it's the worst kept secret in ancient Israel. Because here at the beginning of his ministry, the father has just said, this is my son. Let's remember, this is now a Jewish world. They've heard the stories. They've heard the preaching of this crazy tent maker, Paul, and all the things that he's been doing. 30 years ago, we heard there was this Jesus who was a carpenter and did some pretty amazing things, got crucified. The story is he rose from the dead and 40 days later ascended into heaven. Mark plops this gospel into a Jewish world and in 11 verses, he says to the Jewish world, God the Father says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I want you to connect that back to verse 1. Judy, read verse 1 again. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Stop right there. Verse 1 is absolutely connected to verse 11. Mark, and while I make fun of Mark's Greek, Mark is brilliant. Because he's telling us in 11 verses... Here's the beginning of the gospel. Oh, by the way, this is the gospel. In 11 verses, he's already summed up the entire gospel for us. This is my beloved son. This is mind-blowing to a Jewish audience. But you see, that's the power of him. You know, because he condenses the whole history of Judea and, 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 and Jews and to this moment, into eleven verses, into eleven verses, he mentions everything: the Son and the Father and the Holy Spirit and how it became. Ten, ten, ten second sales pitch. Absolutely, it cannot be better written. I, I, most powerful. Mark is my favorite gospel, probably because it's it's the shortest and it's give me the facts, just the facts, man. But he also ties in Isaiah in there too. You go into uh, verses two and three. You know, and, and most definitely the Jews understood Isaiah. They knew the prophets. Oh, yeah. And so he ties them in. And in essence, well, this, this is God talking. You know, Very much so. Behold, I said my messenger before that day. So this is God talking. This is, and, and Mark just interjects this right in there, too. Yep. All right. I'm going to do just four more verses for tonight. Um, Joan, keep reading. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness and. He was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. Okay, again, Mark just kind of gives us the facts. Matthew and Luke are going to elaborate this whole thing for us in the dialogue with Jesus and Satan, where yeah. Satan's tempting him, and, you know, I'm going to give you all the kingdoms of the world if you bow down to me, and Jesus get thee behind me, Satan, and... He says, you know, I'm going to give you, you know, command these stones to become bread. And Jesus says, bread, I can make pizza. Why would I make bread? 
I'm just seeing if you guys are paying attention over there. That's all. Um, there's all this great stuff going on in Matthew and Luke. Mark just says he was driven to the wilderness and he was tempted. Let's talk about the 40 days. What does the number 40 signify throughout the scripture? How many days did it rain when Noah's flood occurred? 40. 40. How many years did the Jews wander in the desert? 40 40 years. Yeah. The number 40 is a recurring theme throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is the number of purification, which is why there are 40 days of Lent. It is a time of purification. Anytime you see the number 40 in the Bible, it is always a time of of purification from sin. So when a um, woman can come to church after birth, it's 40 days, right? All right, let's talk about that one. We've touched on this in the past, but this is a great great how people have misused. Um, When a Jewish woman gave birth, she was considered to be ritually unclean. The reason for that being to the ancient Jewish person, blood contained life because it made sense when you took the blood out of something it died so I can touch a person I can't touch their life I can't touch their blood that's why an animal that's killed kosher they drain all the blood out of it right so far so good now in the ancient world again forgive me young people but before we had you know pads and things like this when a woman gave birth there was a lot of blood You couldn't touch the blood. She was ritually unclean, and so she would stay in her house for 40 days. And after the 40th day, she would go to the temple, and there would be a service. The Orthodox Church took this over, where there are actually three services when a baby is born. The day a baby is born, the priest goes to the hospital and does a little service. On the eighth day, when we used to do, when the Jews did circumcision, we then officially give the child a name, and on the 40th day, the person comes to church to have the baby church. Where it has been confused is people say, oh, um, she's sinful, and she can't come to church until she is forgiven. She's forgiven for what? For having a baby? <laughs> and these are the things where sometimes I wish people just, think just sit back, <laughs> shut up, and think. <laughs> God, hang on a God told us to be fruitful and multiply. And when we're fruitful and multiply, he puts us under repentance? What kind of craziness is that? And, and, and again, young people, forgive me. When a woman's on her menstrual cycle, in the Greek world, the, not the ancient, a hundred years ago, oh, you, you can't kiss an icon when you're menstruating. Why? My grandfather wouldn't let me go to communion. My mother had the same experience. But it's not just the ancient world. Still today, there's people, uh, women who are going through the menstrual cycle, having the period, who will not come to church during that period of time. And the patriarch of Antioch said, this is nonsense. Good for him. He said, no. He says women should be able to receive the, 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 the mysteries of the church whenever they are offered. This is not a woman's fault. This is part of the life that God gave her and it's part of the life. And blood is part of life, yeah. as you just said. And uh, anyway. No, you're, you're spot on. And so to, to this issue of the 40 days, it's not a purification from sin. I remember when we had our first child, our pediatrician said, look, for five to six weeks, you just stay home. Heal. It takes five to six. What's five to six weeks? Forty days. There's a lot of ancient. There's a lot of wisdom in these ancient practices. But I want to be crystal clear on this point. At no point is somebody saying to women, "You're sinful when you're menstruating, or you're sinful when you've given birth." That's insanity to have any kind of a connection of those two things. How long are you pregnant? Forty weeks. The number forty. Interesting. The, the number forty is always a time of preparation and purification. 
So we're told that he goes into the desert and he is tempted. And, and you know, we're doing Mark. We're not doing Matthew and Luke. So we're not going to get into the whole dialogue with the devil, which is a bummer because it's really cool. But we'll come back 10 years and we'll do Matthew. Uh, he was in, what, what's interesting, he was tempted by Satan and he was with the wild beasts. Why does Mark mention the wild beasts? Is he referring to animals or people? <laughs> <laughs> Mark, you tell question. me. And I'm actually being serious. I don't think it was animals. Demons? I think it's, yeah, well, I was going to say, it's, uh, you have angels, because angels seem to come to the rescue, so they're by nature, you have the beasts that kind of being in the end. Yep. Don't tell me what you think. No, but he's, but he's right. There's, there is also another part. Remember, the whole point of the gospel is to reveal Jesus as the Messiah, right? One of the signs of the Messianic kingdom, and I'll do it just to save time, I'm going to go back to Isaiah chapter 11. For those of you keeping score at home, you can write this down and look it up later. So that, well, I'm actually going to uh, Isaiah 11. Uh, I'm going to start chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Right? The Spirit descending. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Yes, yada, 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 etc., etc., etc. Look at verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. To the best of your knowledge, do wolves play with lambs? No. No. Do, do leopards lie down with goats? No, they kill each other. It's a sign of the messianic kingdom when all of this conflict in the world, even in the animal world, goes away. There's peace. I like where John is going with, with the juxtaposition of the devils and the beasts and the angels. The other possibility is this is one of those signs that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. He's out there with the wild beasts and they're not killing him. And the little child shall lead them. He's the little child. So that's a, the, all great possibilities. Uh, I'm going to take the last two verses then we'll finish there for the night. Now, after John was arrested, again, I'd love to know some details there. Who arrested him? What was the charge? What was the trial like? Mark doesn't, he doesn't tell us. He doesn't care. After John was arrested, John came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. All right. You said John came into Galilee. I'm sorry, Jesus. I'm sorry, Jesus. I meant Jesus, yeah. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God, saying, here comes the gospel. The time is fulfilled, point one. The kingdom of God is at hand. Point two, repent, point three, and believe in the gospel, point four. No offense. This should be the content of every sermon you give for the rest of your life. Everything else is commentary. Everything else is commentary. Do we want to fill our churches? Stop telling people they need to increase their stewardship and, you know, whatever. Go to church more. Stop telling people what we need to do. Here's the message. The time is fulfilled, meaning it's now. It's, it's now. There are a couple of different words the Greeks use. Ah, I'll leave where you want to need you. There are two or three different words the Greeks use for time. We had a very precise language. 
Ora is a What time is it? There's Kieros. Kieros is the time of the kingdom, Kairos. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church has a, a spiritual retreat called Kairos. It's, it's the Greek word Kieros, meaning now is the time. Before the priest starts liturgy, there's, if he has a deacon, there's this lovely dialogue between the two. And the deacon says, Kieros tu to Kirio. It is time for the Lord to act, meaning not, hey, Father, it's 10 o'clock, we're going to get going here. It's, it's time. It's time for the... Kieros is always the time of the kingdom. That's the word he uses here in Mark. He doesn't say ora. He says kieros. The time is fulfilled. It, it, meaning all of human history is now complete. Jesus is here, point one. Point two, the kingdom of God is at hand. <clears throat> we look at our young people, Grace and these two young men, Daniel and Michael. Michael. You know, what do you want to be when you grow up? What's your goal? You want, you want to be a doctor or a lawyer or play football? How about, how do you want to get into the kingdom? What do you want your kingdom life to look like? Because the kingdom is here. And, and you know, those of us who attend, and both I'll include uh, Mary Lou, the, the, the Roman Catholic tradition, which is apostolic, your mass and our liturgy is that little foretaste of what the kingdom of God should be like. That's why the, the, it starts with it is time for the Lord to act. The divine liturgy is that moment when we're standing at the cross. Remember, we've talked about this in the past. Past, present, and future all collapse into one. We're, when you receive communion, you're at the cross. You're standing. You're there. You're, the past comes here. And we're also looking forward to the marriage supper in the, the book of Revelation. The marriage supper of the It all comes together in the here and now. That's kedos. Past and future collapse. The time is at hand, is fulfilled, excuse me, the kingdom of God is at hand. <laughs> Repent. Modern man is very uncomfortable with sin. So we'll justify everything. Well, you know, yes, I beat my wife, but you don't understand, I had a tough life. I didn't, I didn't get enough hugs when I was a kid. Or I had a bad day at work. You know, my boss yelled at me, so, you know, the boss yells at me, I yell at my wife, my wife spanks the kid, the kid kicks the dog, the dog chases the cat, the cat eats the mouse. In psychology, we call that transference. Um, but, but this is, modern man is so uncomfortable with sin, which is why we don't know what to do with it and why we have so much of it. But it's, that's, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I may just add to that. So we go back into the past, 2,000 years ago, you have slavery, you have this, you have that, I mean, the worst of the worst. And yet, at that time, Man is repenting for sins that they are committing. Today, we have freedoms, we have science, we have health, and we deny that we've ever done anything wrong. Absolutely. And it's just so contradictory, so oxymoronic, you know, you just can't put those two things together. You know, why would people be more conscious way back when, when they had every reason not to be? Um, because our world doesn't want to accept accountability. There's a great uh, kind of a sarcastic satire poem back in the 60s, Hey, Lamaito, Bats in the Belfry, Jolly Old Sigmund Freud. When I was one, you know, um, my, my daddy hit my mommy one day, and that's why I suffer from kleptomania. And he goes on all these things. <laughs> and, it's, and I'm so glad since I have learned this lesson, I've been taught that everything I do that's wrong is someone else's fault. Hey, Lamaito, Bats in the Belfry, Jolly Old Sigmund Freud. Um, we live in a world where everything I do is someone else's fault. Is that what Jesus says here? What does he say? Repent. Repent. Uh, one of the most misunderstood verses in all of Scripture is when the woman is caught in the act of adultery. 
And Jesus says, where are those who condemn you? Go your way. And people say, well, you know, Jesus didn't condemn her. You know, he didn't. Right. He also didn't say, go your way and sleep around all you want. He said, go your way and sin no more. Sooner or later, somebody has to say to modern man, stop sinning. It's, it's, it's not that hard to say it. I mean, it's hard to do it. But stop sinning. And so we have to accept it. The frustrating thing for me as an Orthodox, and again, Roman Catholic, you have the same prayers we do in many of cases. The prayers before we say communion. Every Sunday, all our communities, we all stand there like robots. I believe and confess, O Lord, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, who can come into the world to save sinners. What's the next line? Of whom I am chief. How about we stop reciting it like robots and actually listen to it? And recognize, yeah, there is some sin in my life that I need to repent from. So the time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. We need to do this not because it's fun, not because it's cool and easy. The kingdom is here. Jesus is here. The kingdom of God is upon us. Repent. And what's the fourth point? Believe in the gospel. And as we said earlier with Gordon, you know, and James, even the demons believe. It's not enough just to say, yeah, I, I believe. Remember, when we get to heaven, he's not going to give us a theology test. <laughs> I, I can pass that. Do you believe in virgin birth? Yeah. Resurrection? Yeah. Good. I'm in. <laughs> no. He's got one question for us. Did you love? And in particular, did you love the unlovable? Do you know someone who's unloved? Don't point. <laughs> did you love? It's just not enough to say, I believe. Okay, what is that? how does that belief affect your life? I want you to think tonight, here's your homework between now and next Tuesday night, and then we're gonna, you know, we'll move forward with the actual ministry of Jesus. These four basic points, this is the gospel, pure and simple. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. I want you to think about what that means in your life, that the kingdom of God is here. It's, upon, it's not coming, it's here. Um, the fathers of the church refer to this as um, realized eschatology. Eschaton is the study of the last things, the eschaton. Um, the kingdom is here, but not yet. We get a foretaste of it. Have you ever been you know, so connected to someone through love or through a community when you know, the choir is just hitting beautiful notes? It's like, my God, this is spectacular. That little, it's just a foretaste of what the kingdom is going to be like. So the kingdom of God is at hand. I want you to think about that how that affects, how that should be affecting your life. If you knew that Jesus was coming back tomorrow night at 7 o'clock, how differently would you live tomorrow? Oh, boy. If you knew Jesus was coming back at 7 o'clock tomorrow night, how differently would you live the next 24 hours of your life? Pray, yeah. Rush to fix everything unfixable. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Whatever is going on in our lives, if it's not bringing... Doesn't God want me to be happy? No. He wants you to be holy. There is a difference. But he also said in the, in the, in the gospel lesson of the, the, the paralytic by the pool, he said, uh, go and sin no more, lest anything worse beset you. Yeah. And I think... He we, warned them. Yeah, we, we can all accept that one today because worse things are happening. Repent and believe in the gospel. Here's the beautiful thing. That's it. Um, 
you think about some of the initiation rites. So those of you who went to college and joined a fraternity or a sorority, and the, the crazy, every year there's some story from some college in America where some poor kid dies mm-hmm. because of what they made him do and the hazing and he had to you know, drink 70 shots of vodka and you know, do somersaults or some stupid thing. What's our initiation into this body of Christ? Believe that the time is at hand. Believe that the kingdom of God is upon us. Repent and believe in the gospel. Period. That's it. It ain't hard. It ain't complex. And we'll leave it there for tonight. We'll see you next Tuesday.